Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Ave Geeks podcast. I'm Sergeant Jack Anderson, and I'm here tonight with Sergeant Aidan Paul. How's it going? And Sergeant Madeline, Madeline McConnell. Hi, everyone. And as always, we are going to be your hosts. I am very sorry that I screwed up on McConnell's name right there. It's been a long week, but let's just get this started. So for this week, we have a very, very interesting topic and a very patriotic topic, too, for all the Canadians out there. We are going to be talking about the Avro Arrow. Now, this is probably one of the most famous fighter planes in Canadian history, yet it never actually saw service with the RCAF, which is why it is just absolutely perplexing. It is interested people, aviation geeks and non-aviation geeks alike for easily 50 years now. It is just an amazing aircraft, and we are going to be taking a look at it. So first, we need to give a little bit of background info. So in 1953, Avro Canada began developing a new aircraft that was to replace the CF-100 Canuck. This would be the CF-105, or this would sort of produce the result, which would be the CF-105. This is better known as the Avro Aero. Uh, so first, let's actually talk about why the aircraft was needed, because to understand what this aircraft did, what its functions were, we have to understand why it was made. What purpose was it given? So we go back all the way to 1944, when the Canadian federal government established a committee on aircraft manufacturing. And the committee reported that establishing a Canadian aircraft industry was of the utmost importance to national security. So up until this point, we really didn't have an industry of our own. We mainly piggybacked off of the British. Um, we did do a bit off of the United States. We see that a lot more actually. Most of our industry is piggybacked off of the US's military industry. Um, but yeah, back then we definitely had much closer ties to the UK. So we mainly piggybacked off their industry. Um, but the, the committee from the federal government, they decided that we needed to start building our own aircraft. And I completely agree with that assumption. We can't really rely on other nations to be providing our aircraft. So because of that, Avro Canada was founded as the Canadian subsidiary of the British company Avro, and they began operations in 1945. At first, they were mainly repairing World War II aircraft and building them too. So their main two aircraft that they repaired there were uh, Sea Furies and Avro Lancasters. Um, they did do a bit of production on them as well, but their main role was to take them from uh, forward operating stations and they would basically repair them and do servicing on them. Uh, the company quickly grew to be the third largest in Canada and among the top 100 worldwide, which is pretty amazing considering that it wasn't sort of uh, an independent company, it was mainly a subsidiary. So what we mean by that is Avro Canada was owned by Avro, the original British company. So yes, it was its own company and it could make its own decisions, but it mainly got quite a bit of its funding from Avro, the British company. Uh, at the height of Avro's success, or Avro Canada's success, they employed over 50,000 people. And during the early 1950s, they worked with other countries to develop the CF-100 Canuck. However, as the Korean War came to an end, it became apparent that the Soviet long-range bombers were a serious threat, and the Western allies really didn't have any aircraft that could effectively challenge them. It was for this reason 
that in 1953, the RCAF issued a request for a supersonic interceptor that could defend against these bombers. So first they looked into aircraft offered by British, French and American manufacturers, but none of them met the requirements. So they turned to Avro Canada, who came up with the Aero, which was to be a revolutionary new aircraft that promised to be better than any other interceptor in the world. So now to tell us a little bit about the success of the Avro Aero is Sergeant McConnell. So the construction of the aircraft began in 1956, and the aircraft was first shown off on October 4th, 1957. Minister of Defense George Perkis said that the aircraft had one great advantage over a missile. It could bring the judgment of a man into the battle. Unfortunately, on the same day, the Soviets launched Sputnik 1, the world's first satellite, which meant the people's attention was elsewhere. The plane had its first flight on March 25, 1958. The test pilot for the aircraft said that he had never flown a prototype aircraft with so few problems before. This gave the RC, RCAF the most advanced fighter jet in the world at the time. All right, thank you, Sergeant McConnell. So one thing I quickly want to address that she spoke about in there was that quote from Minister of Defense, George Perkis. And that is absolutely right. It is a lot better than a missile because with a missile, it's sort of you fire and you forget. So that gives the bombers opportunity to evade. That gives them opportunity to launch countermeasures. It really doesn't secure that they are going to be taking down that aircraft. Um, well, even then, some air-to-air missiles, like they'll be going at like Mach 5, like some air-to-air missiles go like crazy fast on top of that. Top of that, with missiles, you get the added bonus of if, of if you can throw as many missiles as you want at the enemy, they won't be able to stop all of them. And since these will be nuclear bombers, you just got to take out one and the nuke on board will get rid of the rest of the bombers without the loss of any human Canadian lives. See, I think the main problem with that analogy, though, is... A lot of times the nuclear weapons on board these aircraft wouldn't actually be armed until they were over their destination for that exact reason. So if any of the aircraft were damaged or if any of them went down, it wouldn't just wipe out the entire wing or the entire squadron of bombers that would be flying. Um, I think also, yeah, you can send out a lot of missiles, but yeah, those bombers, considering how many there are of them, they can just keep deploying countermeasures, they can just keep evading. And yeah, again, if there's any need to um, call off the attack mid-flight for whatever reason, if you found out maybe it's a computer glitch halfway through, or they were doing some peaceful operations, like they were just going to test one somewhere else. Yeah, back in the 1950s, there really wasn't an effective way to call off a surface-to-air missile. Whereas, yeah, a fighter pilot could effectively judge the situation and he could be in constant contact. So he could be called off, and he could really, he could make sure that all of the bombers were destroyed. He could make sure that they were all defended against. Um, that is true, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think, so I think, yeah, uh, George Perkins was right when he said that, the Minister of Defense. Now, we do want to talk very quickly about the aircraft itself. So here with some of these specifications is Sergeant Paul. Thank you, Anderson. So the arrow had a crew of two people two people it was 77 feet long with a wingspan of 50 feet with a delta wing design so already it was pretty big big bigger than most fighter aircraft at the time 
It had an empty weight of just over 49,000 pounds with a max takeoff weight of just over 68,600 pounds. So could carry a good amount of armament. That's always a good thing. It had two Pratt and Winnie J75 P3 afterburning turbo and turbo turbojet engines. I can't pronounce that word for life of me. Producing 16,500 pounds of thrust each, which made it go pretty fast as fast as Mach 1.98, almost Mach 2. Very impressive for an aircraft from 19, the 1950s. However, a lot of engineers have speculated that could have gone faster if it were pushed harder. And so it had a cruising speed of 527 knots or 976 kilometers per hour, which is pretty fast, especially for the time. It had a range of about 360 nautical miles or 670 kilometers, a bit less impressive for the time. Uh, Service ceiling with 53,000 feet, pretty average, um, as well as a thrust to weight ratio of 0.825 at full loaded weight. So overall, pretty good. Um, So as for weapons, it could use two Air-2A unguided nuclear rockets for ground attack because launching nukes out out of your tiny fighter jet at close range is the perfect idea. And that was was a very real thing. That is actually, that's making a comeback with aircraft such as the F-35. They've decided to go with that concept again. Yeah, well, Um, F-35s can actually be high enough to avoid nukes. See, I think with this, though, the arrow, when it was flying at 53,000 feet, I I think that probably was high enough. I think maybe anything over 10 to 15,000 feet, I think would give you enough time to get out of the way of a nuke. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I mean, then again, if you're going at a cruising speed of not a thousand kilometers per hour, you might get hit with a shockwave. Well, I mean, still, I think I don't think you'd be going that fast. I think you would drop the bomb, you'd close the doors, and you would just gun it out of there. I don't think you'd be waiting around for that thing. I think you would get as high as you can, and you would get as far away from that as you can. That is true. So for air attack. The Arrow would also use one of the following three options. It would have four Canadair Velvet Glove missiles, eight AIM-4 Falcons, or three AIM-7 Sparrow II missiles. And the last two options were both the predecessors of the very popular AIM-9 Sidewinder and AIM-120 AMRAM missiles in use today. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Sergeant Paul. Um, one thing I want to bring up is that uh, Flight Corporal McConnell and I sort of had to pick our jaws up off the floor because that was amazing. He just read through all of those numbers, all of those facts uh, with practically no screw-ups whatsoever. So well done, Paul. That was very good. You just went straight, th- you went straight through that. I'm one thing good numbers. I d- yeah, I can tell. <laughs> um, one thing I want to bring up, though, is uh, you said it had a crew of two. I've been doing a lot of research on that. I cannot find what those two crew were, whether it was a pilot and a co-pilot or a pilot and a Rio pilot and a navigator. I have not been able to figure out what those two crew members were doing. I know for sure one of them was a pilot. I think that one's pretty obvious. But I have no probably clue what the job is. It was an intercept. It was, if it's an interceptor, it's probably either a pilot and a navigator or a pilot and a co-pilot. Yeah, you know what? That would make a lot of sense. I would. All right. So now that we've uh, covered that a bit, we're going to talk a bit about why the program was canceled. Because up until this point, if you were thinking, wow, this sounds completely awesome. Why did they cancel it? You are just like us. 
We absolutely love this aircraft. I think most Canadians loved this aircraft at the time and continue to love this aircraft. It is truly beautiful. And with all the technology that it had, yes, I think it probably would have been the most advanced fighter in the world at the time it was built. So that raises the big question, why was it canceled? Well, in June of 1957, a new conservative government was elected. And they began scrutinizing all major spending of the previous liberal government. One program that stood out to them was the Avro Arrow. The Canadian government had invested $1.1 billion, which adjusted for inflation adds up to nearly $9.6 billion. In addition to that, after the launch of Sputnik, it became apparent that long range nuclear missiles were the future, that there was no need for a bomber interceptor. So yeah, really after Sputnik, the Soviets sort of stopped focusing on their long range bomber technology and put everything into missiles. Yeah, like Sergeant Paul and I were um, talking about earlier, um, our big debate over missiles or fighter aircraft. Fighter aircraft really only work when there's a bomber to shoot down. When you're trying to shoot down a missile, it is much easier to use another missile than it is to use uh, a fighter aircraft or an interceptor aircraft. It is nearly impossible actually for a fighter to shoot down a missile. Like, I'm missiles are the way to go. I think they are. I, I think there are some advantages and disadvantages to both, but let's not really get into that big debate for right now because that would probably take up the rest of our time. Um, right, so this led to uh, Prime Minister John Diefenbaker announcing that the project would be cancelled in September of 1958. So if you want a simple answer, it was essentially it cost too much. And I think for a little more complexity, it was built with an era that had already gone past in mind. I think it was similar to how we talked about the A380 a while back and how when it was designed to be a competitor to the 747, it was absolutely brilliant, but it just took so long in development that by the time it was done, its era had already gone past. I think this is much the same story. It was a fighter aircraft that was built for a time when bombers were key, when the only way to nuke places, the only way to drop weapons on another city would be to fly a bomber over it. But with the, uh, with the new missiles coming up, the long range and the faster missiles, there's just no way that a bomber interceptor could keep up like this. So I think if it had been introduced 10 years before it was, it probably would have been the best aircraft in the world. However, it's the SR-71 of the 60s or the 50s. Yeah, exactly. It's it's an aircraft that is absolutely amazing. It was just born into the wrong era. But um, well, I was going to say something. I was going to say, right. I think the cost of it, though, I think those really crept up on the government. I really don't think they realized how much they're spending until they actually looked at it from a different point of view. And I think that's the major problem with um, the Canadian military at the time they really didn't have the funding to do this. They don't have such a massive budget like the United States or the Soviet military did, where they could afford to spend billions upon billions of dollars on a new fighter aircraft. Our economy just wasn't designed to handle that. Now, there was a massive aftermath from this decision. So to talk about that a little more, uh, I'm going to introduce Sergeant McConnell. 
Oh, the decision to abandon the program left 14,000 Avro Canada employees jobless and about 15,000 more who worked with other jobs in the supply chain, and that day is still known as Black Friday. The remaining aero aircraft were either scrapped or sold off. The cancellation of the aero program dealt with a major blow to Avro Canada, from which they never recovered, and then they shut down their doors in 1962. Yeah, and that is actually, I think, a main reason to why you really don't see major um, military aircraft production up here in Canada. It's because the one company that really produced a lot of our military aircraft, Avro Canada, they took out this massive risk to build the best aircraft in the world, but eventually they, they lost it all when the government pulled the plug on it. I think the government was a little short-sighted there because... As McConnell said, it not only affected the 14,000 Avro employees who were working on this project, it affected the 15,000 more who worked in the supply chain. So in all of the, um, uh, the raw material centers that would have to mine for this material to send it to the actual project, all the people working on the trucks and railways who had to ship this thing, yeah, they lost a lot of jobs. So that's, that's nearly 30,000 jobs that got lost with one decision. And one major problem with that was that it convinced a lot of these engineers to leave Canada and head down to the United States. So with that one decision, we lost a lot of the geniuses who had worked on this project. And they all went down there. They worked for places like Boeing, Lockheed. In fact, a lot of them I was reading went on to help with the uh, space program. So for all we know, Canada could have had the space program up here. We could have been the first ones to land on the moon had we not canceled this project. That's purely speculation, but I think there's a chance it could have happened if we had not lost so many of our best engineers and our top scientific minds. Now, with all that said, that is just about our time for tonight. So we'd like to thank you once again for listening to the Ave Geeks podcast. Good night, and we'll see you next time. Have a good one. Bye, everyone.